welcome to the Nightmare Box Presents The Art of Wargaming. I'm Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And tonight we're going to be talking about attacking with fire. Uh, but before then, uh, we're going to go through the, the intro section. I, I, I'm never quite sure how to do this transition. It's a, it, one of the things i got to work on. You'll get there, buddy. Uh, Thumbs and I, we're just doing our, our, our little mental warm-up, making sure that we transition into what I call church voice. Um, which is to say that I, like I've said in earlier episodes, I normally swear like a, a soldier, and uh, I've had a fairly colorful life, and so some of the stories I can tell are interesting. So, but, but uh, this podcast is uh, supposed to be consumable by That's all right. audiences. G PG it's supposed PG. to be. Yeah, yeah. We we try. We really <laughs> we really try. <laughs> kind of dark subjects for rated G. True, uh, but there's a lot of kids who are into wargaming. Uh, That's which, right. Which, or, and, and, and younger people who are into wargaming who perhaps would not be as comfortable with the other the other things we talk about. So we were just sitting here talking about, because I call it that because, of course, when I go to church, I don't necessarily want to go in there and be like, you know, uh, I, I, I can't bleep, actually swear. Yeah, bleepity bleep, 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 swings for, for what we do. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just the place. So it, like, uh, it's just the mindset. Just the mindset. So here we are. We're in church voice. We're, and, and then we're talking about <laughs> attacking with fire. Um, so before, like, before, we were talking about uh, the, these knights that I have. And like I said, I've been, I've been playing these knights for two reasons. One of them is that I've got some back issues. And so having an army, 2,000-point army that only consists of, like, six models is awesome. Uh, because it means that my movement phase is very short and I can spend most of my time sitting down or at least not bending over the table. Um, the other part of this is that knights are just fun to play. You've got some very powerful models, they look really cool, and they're stomping all over the field. But there's a, there's a, uh, a drawback to it, which is that when you put all of the, your points into this one model, when that one model goes, it's bad. Uh, because it's not just so like if I lose a, a group of brimstone horrors and there are three 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 points of pop so 10 of those that's 30 points yeah there's nothing that's a drop in the bucket but a knight castellan or a knight tyrant is over 700 points so when that bad boy goes down half your army's gone that's right <laughs> that's a big <laughs> issue so this week I had two different games uh, and they ended very differently, but they it came down to just a few dice rolls. Like with anything else in this game, it, it does come down to somewhat luck. Uh, especially with knights, they can be these clutch moments where if you roll well, the rest of the game is going to go pretty smoothly for you because you made your save or you got the really good damage or whatever it was that, that tipped it and, and put you into the lead. It can go the other way as well. So for example, early on in the week, I went against uh, one of my apprentices, Kaji. Yeah, he was running a knight list as well because I'd warned him beforehand. I don't like blindsiding somebody and being like, "Oh, you came with a nice casual list, and I came with a bunch of Lords of War." <laughs> One of the few times I've ever played Warhammer 40k, I was telling you about this the other day. Uh-huh. Um, I played an orc army and I went up against a bunch of uh, dark Eldar in I don't know some kind of skiff jet. Thing. I think I know what you're talking about. I just cannot remember what it's called because I don't play Dark Elder. And I was using mostly boys, and I had almost no... It was a very small army, and I had almost no anti-vehicle stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, they just picked me apart. Well, sure, and, and just about everything Dark Eldar is poisoned. So if you've got fleshy bits exposed, which is an orc army for the most part... But it's one place where 
the more for less models is right. really worked in the favor. And the matchup, too. Like, that you, you would have done differently against a different type of army than you did against that one. Yeah. And it's the same thing with knights. If you're going against somebody who has no anti-tank, no anti-heavy weaponry, your knights are going to stomp all over them. But I like to warn my opponents beforehand because I like a good game, and I don't just want to blindside them. Gotcha, Hammer. You know? <laughs> um, so this game against Kaji <clears throat> was going really well. The first round for both of these games was very intense, as it typically is, because I set up my knight. I think I talked about it last time, where I, I have the one knight that's really punchy-oriented. He gets, like, two extra inches of movement and three extra inches on his charge and his advances. Um, if this I haven't is your talked, Armia? No, no, this is my Chaos Knight. Oh, sorry. My Chaos Knight list. Did I not talk about this last time? I think Orc last time, but I'm not sure. Hmm. Either way. I'll listen back, and if I haven't, I'll, I'll, I'll go into exactly how I trick him out, but basically, my uh, knight rampager is getting to you first turn, because he, he gets anywhere between, like, 20 and 32 inches of movement uh, that first turn, if I play him right, and he, and so, he's getting there, that's the, that's the point. Um, and he got there, this game against Kaji, and I managed to kill his large, because he had, he had the one knight errant, and he had two smaller armagers. Um, and I ran up, I shot it down to a fairly low level because he had it tricked out with all sorts of good stuff that was keep making it hard for me to kill it. Um, and then I ran up and I punched it. But he was playing House Tyrannus. And House Tyrannus has a stratagem, three command points. Uh, then on a four up, your knight comes back from the dead. Oh, that's going to backfire. With three wounds, yeah. Uh, close to where it was before. So at the end of the round, his knight comes back, boom. And then it punches my knight and kills him. Which mm-hmm. reverses, like, basically that, that whole first turn of effort was, was kaput. And it reversed the course of the battle completely to his favor because he, like, I had brought a heavy knight list. He had the one big knight, the two smaller knights, and then a bunch of Astra Militarum tanks and his Terminators. His Grey Knight Terminators, which yeah. are all, like, they're all psychers, every single one of them. Um, so, it, needless to say, it went poorly for me. After that, he rolled really well, he played really well, and, and yeah, that point loss was huge. Later on, I played against TF, and a very similar thing happened where it came down to that first round. He unloaded his entire army into me, and he had brought the tools he needed. My knight was down to three health, made some clutch saves, hung on there, and was able to get into it that next round. If he'd have been able to clear it that first round, you're fucked. I, I, yeah, yeah, there, there, there's another sword swing right there for you, Kristen. Sorry about that. <laughs> yes, we are, at, I'm not, not doing well at that point. <laughs> and so the fact that I was able to make those saves and he wasn't able to finish off that night meant it, that that was the rest of the game because I was actually able to do what I wanted to do. If he had killed my knight, that, especially my melee knight that early, I would not have done so well. It's high risk, high reward. High risk, high reward. Exactly. Um, and there's a lot of things that are like that. Um, but the knights are, are like that a lot. So if you like knights, if you want to play knights, I just want this is basically me kind of talking about uh, my experience with them because I, I really dig them. But moving on, um, I wanted to talk about real quick the reasons why I've never taught this chapter. And I've been teaching this since 2005 when I ran the very first Officers Academy at the very first uh, Gladiator School. Oh, man, I remember that. I was in that. Yep. And I don't know if you can recall back there, but I skipped this chapter even then. I also skipped using spies. I wasn't as uh, politically adept at the time. (laughs) So the next chapter is absolutely... That's going to be a fun chapter to talk about. I'm going to enjoy it, no doubt. 
Um, but attacking with fire was always a difficult one to conceptualize because one, I mean, if you read the first part of the chapter, it's talking about the types of attacking with fire and attacking the opponent's arsenal and attacking their equipment. And that's not cool. If you're doing that in battle, you're going <laughs> you're, to be you're expelled. Arrested. Yeah, you're going to be arrested and you're going to be asked not to come back to the event because that's not cool. Uh, same thing in 40k. If you're going around melting people's models or, or, or dropping firecrackers on people's tanks, they're, you're not going to have a good time uh, and you're going to spend the weekend not at the tournament, but in the jail cell instead. Um, not so much 40k there. No. So, uh, again, I had a hard time trying to figure out how this one was going to be taught, and I almost didn't again. Um, when we were first planning this out, I was talking to Oni about it, and I and I almost was going to skip this one again, but he convinced me not to for several reasons. Um, one, as we'll get into later, the concept of fire as emotion, as passion, as a driving force behind why we fight, uh, behind how we can fight well, uh, that was something, that, that, a metaphor that I didn't think about. And so Oni and I kind of talked about that, and so I want to definitely add that into the bell section. But then as I thought more about it, I was like, flame attacks are definitely applicable to 40k. Um, but it also gives us an opportunity to talk about something that we don't talk about generally on this show, which is the human cost of a lot of this war. Um, many of the battles we speak about are ancient. They occurred hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. Um, and typically the ones that we've chosen have been fairly remote. They've been removed from civilian populations because uh, it was easier to do that. Uh, the, the, the earth is far more populated now and has, has continued to become more populated. And so naturally more conflict is going to occur in urban zones because there's just more urban zone to fight in. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's something that needs to be considered. And, well, and also with old, sorry, interrupted you. Oh, there. No, you're fine. Uh, with a lot of older stuff like that, they're more likely to record the big, glorious battle between two warriors than they are. Here's the down and dirty scrum of fighting in a city where yeah. there are civilians everywhere. Just... And, and sacking a city. And and also at the time, the civilian casualties weren't necessarily considered. It wasn't something that people cared about as yeah. much. Uh, like, you, you read back at it, and it's almost like an afterthought if, if civilians were killed, whereas now we actually we care about it. Although it's noteworthy, I was listening to this on the way up here, even Sun Tzu was basically like, be really, really sure before you use fire. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. be... <laughs> Yeah, the first you two cannot of this rebuild chapter. a city. Yeah, you can't rebuild a, ch- a city. You can, once lives are lost, you cannot uh, get them back. Uh, so some, even Sun Tzu here uh, cautions about the use of fire. Um, so, but that that first two thirds of the chapter, we're not necessarily going to be talking about that because again, those are specific things about sieging and destroying equipment that, that we're just frankly not going to do. But the second part and the idea of attacking with fire is going to be kind of the subject of this episode. Um, but before we get in, I like that before we get into, but before we get in to the meat and potatoes, the, the, the 40 K section, the flame attacks, um, I realize there's a fair number of people who listen to the show who exclusively do Bellegarth or other types of wargaming who don't do 40 K. And so before I talk about, um, these mechanics, or before I talk about these flame attacks, it's essential to understand what the wounding mechanics are in 40k. That's good, because otherwise I am not going to have much to input here. And I did not educate Thumbs at all about this beforehand, because I want to make sure that I explain it adequately. So uh, he's going to be the, the gauge here of if I have explained how this works yeah, uh, adequately. So, wounding comes after you hit. 
hitting is fairly simple. You you look at your uh, ballistic score um, for your character, and you apply any modifiers that that might apply. So if if you're taking a negative one for uh, because of an ability that the unit you're shooting at has, if you moved and shoot with the heavy weapon, or if you've got bonuses because you're standing near somebody who gives you bonuses. Um, these modifiers go into the hit. It's kind of like AC in uh, Dungeons and Dragons. A little bit, except it's it's your character. The AC is is I don't know. It's a different mechanic. Okay, it's basically rolling to attack though. In yes, you're rolling to okay. attack. You're rolling to see if you hit them. After you see if you hit them. So let's let's take a uh, a Space Marine for instance. All Space Marines basically hit on a three up across the board, which is to say that on a three or higher on a six sided dice. Your hit succeeds, and it goes on to the wounding phase. Um, Multiple attacks mean multiple dice rolls. Yep. Yep. So the wounding phase is a little bit more complicated because that hit is right there on your board. It says right on your your data sheet, Space Marine, Ballistic Skill, 3 up, 3 plus. So you know that. The wounding is based on a ratio between the strength of the weapon and the toughness of the target. All right. So... It's a it's a fairly easy idea. If you've got, um, uh, sorry, <laughs> I spaced out again for a second. If the number matches, so if if the the strength of the weapon, let's say the strength of my weapon, my bolter is a four, and, and what I'm shooting at is a toughness four. of four, then you need a four or higher. Not because it's four, but because they match okay. a four or higher to wound them. Okay. Um, if the target that you're shooting at is weaker, so let's say you have a strength of four and you're shooting at something with a toughness of three, you need a three or higher because it's a little bit easier, right? All right, I understand, yeah. yeah. But if you double, so let's say I've got a a strength six weapon going against Mm -hmm. a toughness three. It's going to be two or higher? Two or higher, yep, you're catching on. Now let's go the other direction. If I've got a strength four weapon and I'm shooting at something that's toughness five, it's gone up. You have to roll a five or higher. A five or higher. Yes, sir. You found the pattern. And then if it's double on the other side. Okay. And a six one, or higher. Right? Yeah. yeah. And one wound, like one wounding, it does one point of damage on the model. It depends. It depends. So, so certain weapon types have different damage profiles, but a wound going through means that that wound goes through and now the opponent has to save for it. So their save is, is again, on the character sheet. So again, Space Marines are three up for the most part. They always have a three up. So if I have no AP, which is to say armor penetration, and this is what affects your cover or your, your, your uh, armor save going up and down. So an AP of zero means it does not affect your armor save. If you've okay. got an armor save of three, that's what you go for. Now let's say I've got an AP of negative one. <clears throat> now you're saving on a four up, right? Because a little bit more armor penetration means it's a little bit more difficult to save against for your armor. Okay. Okay. So that's if it goes through, and then the damage is something different, and that is based on the weapon itself. So some weapons do one damage, some weapons do three damage, some do D6 damage. Those depend on the weapon. All right, makes sense. But they have to go through first to be able to do that damage. So to to recap, first you hit, then you roll the wound, then then your opponent uh, rolls to save, and then you do damage. Complicated. I get it, but yeah. It, it seems complicated until you do it over and over again. Once you don't you, have to think about it right, anymore. You just get into the habit. So that wounding phase, or that wounding part, is going to be the crucial uh, mechanic of why flame attacks are awesome. 
So, <laughs> if you feel like that was explained adequately... I get you. Okay. Then we're going to move on to talking about flame attacks within 40k. So... Uh, to, to kind of frame what a flame attack is, it is an attack that automatically hits its target. Let me repeat that. Flame attacks automatically hit. You don't have to roll two of those rolls. No, you don't have to roll one of those rolls. Oh, okay. The hit, the hit roll. Oh, they, they still have to roll the save. You still have to roll right. a wound. You still have to roll to see if you wound your target, but you do not have to roll to hit. So this is significant uh, because there's a lot of things in 40k that affect your hit to a, to a very high degree. So take an Altioch flyer that has had that particular stratagem applied to it, you're looking at a negative three to your hit. Even a space marine, which is a generally a very good shooter, is Probably hitting on six hit that. Yeah, that's, that's really hard. So a weapon that automatically hits its target, that has a lot of potential. But... Can it hit flying units yes, too? Yes, it can. Wow, okay. It can hit flying units. Um, so the flip side of that is on average, they're fairly weak. On average, they have a strength of four, which is to say that they are good against light, super light infantry. Imperial Guard's going to be having a bad day. Space Imperial, Marine's not going to yeah, super care. Yeah, Imperial Guard, Eldar, Tau, um, they have to fear your basic flamer. But, like, again, Space Marines, they don't care. Um, anything bigger than a Space Marine definitely does not care. <laughs> um, and, and generally they have a short range, too. You're looking at only a 6 to 9-inch range off of these things as a general rule. Uh, and then they also generally don't have AP, so there's no armor penetration. So even though a lot of flamers automatically hit, and that's a cool mechanic, um, their their ability to actually wound and have sticking damage makes them not so much usable. But there are three instances that I know of, and I'm sure there's more, and I'd love, if, if you know of other ones within 40k that I uh, don't perhaps know about, I'd love you to write into the show and tell me about them because I'm always looking for new information. But there's three specific units I want to talk about that take this flame mechanic and make it very, very useful. Um, so, without further ado, those three are the Castellan robots of the Adeptus Mechanicus. Got to bring them in. Uh, the flamer unit from these niche demons, and the foul blight spawn of the Death Guard. Each one of those sounds like a Norwegian death metal band. They absolutely... Yeah. <laughs> Castellan <laughs> robot, flamers, foul blight spawn. It's a death, it's a death clock yeah. album. I could, yeah, oh, it could definitely <laughs> be a death clock album. I could see that. Mm. That awkward moment where you both take a drink at the same time and there's nobody there to fill the dead space. Oh no, <laughs> speaking. No. So we're going to start with the Castellan robot and their weapon, which is called the Incending Combustor. Um, Sorry, is Castellan what? Imperial Guard or what? Ad- Adeptus Mechanicus. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the, the Castellan robot is with the Adeptus Mechanicus. I don't know much about the Adeptus Mechanicus. I adore them. They are the, uh, they're basically half of the Imperium of Man, and they, as you can imagine, deal with all the technological things. This is where you find your tech priests. They maintain uh, technology from the good old days. They're weird cyborg cultists, aren't they? Yes. They, oh, they, cool. uh, if, you, if you reach um, more than 50% of your body being cybernetic, you're more machine than man, and that's considered a holy symbiosis. Uh, they've taken being a technician to a religious extreme for the most part. Like, imagine s- space Catholics, but who worship uh, electricity. 
More and more, I'm understanding why this appeals to you specifically. Yeah, I, I, I totally dig them because they like anoint things with, they've forgotten why things work a lot of the times. And so instead of just hitting the on button, there has to be this whole ritual of like anointing the holy oils and like the incense and chanting prayers and then the pressing of the, this, the, the rune of activation. Did you ever read, it's an old sci-fi book called Canticle for Leibowitz? No, but it sounds wonderful. It is about the post-apocalypse and literally the Catholic Church, like the remains of the Catholic Church, has become the local government, kind of like Middle Ages style. Okay. uh, Just because they're the only organization that survived, and they find a bunch of blueprints of technology, like electricity and light bulbs and eventually nuclear tech, because it was the 50s. Right. But... uh, I just thought you would like it. If you if you like Adeptus Mechanicus, this is probably some other inspiration. It probably is. I mean, every every all art is theft, mm-hmm. um, and so the ideas of forty k absolutely came from other places. Um, as long as you do it well, I don't care if you're using tropes. Yep, tropes exist for a reason. Indeed, indeed. But back to these Castellan robots, real quick, who are part of the Adeptus Mechanicus. They're incending combustor. So the this is generally a strength five weapon. So that means that uh, you never have anything in the game that has larger than a toughness of eight. Unless there's, you, you can modify, so if you, if you hit somebody with a spell or something that increases their toughness beyond eight, that is possible. But base stats, you're not going to have anything above a toughness of eight. So a strength of five is significant because it means that you are wounding on fives rather than sixes. It doubles your chance to wound. All right, yeah. Um, so that I mean, again, this weapon isn't necessarily always used, is not to be used against vehicles, but it it it's not totally ineffective against large vehicles. Is my point. Um, so strength five, it has an AP of negative one. So that's that's pretty good because you got a little bit of pen there, um, and that and that is useful for taking out horde units or for making your shots count. Again, uh, a four up against a space marine counts a lot more than a three up. Um, it, it's just any anything you can do to make your opponents things harder is better. Um, and then here's a significant part. This is a 12 inch range on this. So this is That's about, pretty good for a flamer. It's about double, if not 50, if like between 50 or a hundred percent more than a flamer yeah. is normally. Um, so it's a heavy D six, but again, you don't have to worry about a, a moving and firing penalty because it automatically hits. But the, the special thing here, so you're like, okay, that's pretty cool. It's basically like an upgraded flamer, right? The cool thing is it comes with the Castland robots, um, a protocol mechanic. So if you put them into protector protocol, uh, they've got three different protocol modes, but this is the, the one that we're focusing on right now. They get to double their amount of shots. So it's a upgraded flamer that fires a lot. That fires twice as much. Instead of 1d6 shots, you have 2d6 shots. And these Castellan robots, they're, they, they come, they start with two in a unit, and you can have up to six, I believe. So imagine six robots. That's 12 fire shots. That's 12 d6 shots that automatically hit against 12 d6. Oh my man, that's up to uh, mathing. 72? That's a lot. That's a lot of shots. That's a lot of shots that automatically hit and then you're you're looking at, 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 you know, bare minimum a five up to wound. So that's pretty decent, right? 
That's I mean, that's mass numbers with flamers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so again, this this is very useful if you've got if you're trying to defend your your gun line against a horde army like Tyranids or orcs that are trying to press in on you. Uh, this this particular weapon, this particular unit, can be very useful for that. I've used it uh, for that. I've never used cast and robots in groups of six. I, threes are how I typically play them for whatever reason. Um, Wait, if you have seventy two shots or up to seventy two shots, do you have to do all three dice roll every time? What do you mean? You were saying you can throw 72 shots in a fight. Yes. Do you have to roll the three dice of, like, to hit, to wound, wound to every time? Yep. So you're throwing, like, 200 rolls in a round. Oh, you throw so many. If if you don't like rolling dice, Warhammer 40k <laughs> is not the game for you. Sorry, I have not played in a while, so I'm just, a few things are just uh, occurring you, to me as we talk about this. Craps players would get tired at how many d6s we throw around. I'm just saying. I'm telling it down, man. There's a lot of dice. Um, but yeah, so that's a fairly significant one. That cast, and again, the Castline robot itself is a fairly tough model. They can withstand a lot of damage. They've got some, they have some good defenses to them. So they're a, they're a tough, survivable unit that can dish out some, some decent fire damage. And so I wanted to uh, introduce this idea using them because they are kind of just a, a, an upgrade, a very normal upgrade to a flamer. But now we're going to make it weird. We're going to go over to the chaos side of things because I found that chaos actually has some pretty cool things when it comes to the uh, the flame mechanics. So first we're going to go to the Zneech demons. Okay. Mm. I love them. And we're going to talk about... Like Zneech. I do love... And, and I know that I'm... This is probably going to be the episode that I get the most people writing in about because everybody I've met pronounces that name differently. <laughs> and I think that's the point. Sneech, Snatch, Snatch. Yeah, I like, Yeah, I've heard so many different pronunciations, and I think that's the point, because it is just this unpronounceable... Un, unpronounceable? <laughs> unpronounceable. It's the H.P. Lovecraft of names. Yeah, yeah. It's unknowable, man. Um, <laughs> so the Flamers, I gotta admit, when I first got the box set, because that's I, I wanted to build up to a brigade with my Zneech demons, and I was not very impressed with the Flamers at first. I was only running them in small groups of, of about three, and I was noticing that they were not getting to where I wanted them to get to. They died too easily, and when they got there, they didn't have enough punch. And so, honestly, I wasn't—I was thinking about just selling them and not keeping them in my army because I couldn't figure out how to use them. I'm going to give away one of my secrets tonight because the Flamer is actually one of the most useful units in the game okay. if you use them correctly. So, the Flamer, their their ranged attack is called Flickering Flames. That's just what it's called. Okay. Now, it starts at a strength of four, but that is because it plays off of the strength of the unit itself. Most flame attacks are a weapon. It does not matter how strong the Space Marine or the Tyranid is. Their weapon has its own strength characteristic. Okay. Zneech demons draw off of their own internal strength. So, this strength four is because the flamer is strength four. That's significant. Okay? I'm not just... That's not just there for no reason. <laughs> so... Also a 12-inch range on these ones, which means anybody who deep strikes on you, or if you deep strike, um, pay attention for that for later, uh, you're going to be in range, because deep striking, you have to be more than nine inches away if you're if you're coming in as an out-of-off-board mechanic to come into the game. Yeah, you can't game. just basically go in already right. and... You have to be outside of nine inches. Yeah. So a 12-inch flamer means you can drop and hit them, right? Oh, that's nice. It's very nice. AP negative one. 
again, so we're, we have a nice little penetration there, something, something that's at least a little significant. This one is a pistol D6. Now, a pistol weapon is a weapon that can be fired in melee combat. So that's significant because these guys can be used to deep strike and then jump in on your opponent's tanks. And even though they are not good at melee combat, they're just wailing away with their little nubs and they're, they're, they don't do much. because They're they still hit. shooting fire. They can still shoot fire from melee range. So that is significant. Um, so all of that considered, if it was just that, they are still fairly weak. Like even with that 12-inch range, that's nice, but they're still strength 4. AP negative one, that's cool, but a pistol, so it's, it's kind of back and forth. So let's start stacking them some things on here, because their usefulness comes not by themselves, but in a group uh, with one other thing. And this would be, I'd like to drop them, deep strike them, from the warp, with my warlord, who is a herald of Zneech. I like to use a Fluxmaster, because the Fluxmaster gets a nice move. I think it's a 12 or 14 inch move because they're on a disc, a nice little disc, so they can keep up with the flamers who do have a larger move. Yeah, if you lots drop of some, range still. And, 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 and so they're not just, they can keep up, and so you keep them within this bubble. They're not me when I'm trying to run with people just like 30 feet behind me, like, I'm coming, guys! Um, so, uh, the, the Herald is significant uh, for, for, uh, for a very specific reason. The Herald increases the strength of friendly Zneech demons that are within their bubble by one. So remember that strength five is significant, right? Yeah. Because it drops it from a six to a five against just about anything and that you could possibly go against. So having this herald nearby increases the strength of the flamer. The flamer's weapon is based off of the strength of the flamer themselves. So, so you, the flamer gets stronger too. Yes. So the flickering flames that the flamer has are now stronger as well. So that herald is important. Now, the reason I say that you want him to be your warlord is coming up in just a second. But you want to give that herald the flickering flames spell. Not to be confused with the flickering flames weapon that the flamers already have. But the flickering flames spell, if it, you're able to get it off, means that you wound... On a plus at a plus one. So let me let me put this. So if you were if you were wounding at a five up before, you're now wounding at, at a, a four. four up. So it's a lot easier. To it's a someone. lot easier. So what I like, and, and so so now you've got that plus that plus one to wound, mm-hmm. and then the the warlord trait that you give to this herald is the daemon spark warlord trait that lets you re-roll ones to wound. That's any a lot one of stacking. Any one you roll in the in so any any dice that has a one on it mm-hmm. in the wound phase, you get to re-roll that dice. Infinitely or just, no, just the one time? Okay. Just the one just time. Check him, just check <laughs> Infinite no ones. That would be broken. Yes, that would be broken. <laughs> you, you can only re-roll a dice once in this game. You can't you cannot stack re-rolls. Um, but yeah, so with with that in mind, that means that there is nothing in the game that you're not wounding on at least a four up. You're re-rolling all ones. I like to run these guys at max strength, which is nine. So that's nine D6, uh, like automatically hit, right? Okay, yeah. And then you're wounding on at least fours, re-rolling ones. AP negative one. Chances of hitting are pretty good at that point. I melt Lehman Roos tanks. And I, and I know that you don't. You haven't played against Lehman Roos. I, I know what a Lehman Roos is, at least, like... Contextually, they are chonky tanks. They they're, are the, they're the tankiest the, of tanks. Are they the biggest tanks <clears throat> in the Imp Guard army? Yes, or? Okay, I mean yeah. they're, they're your your base, your basic tank. Your, they're, they're, they are the Imperial Guard tank, but they are one of the best tanks in the game. Um, and I have melted them before by deep striking this group in front of them and just 
Just imagine being the poor scrub Imperial Guard guy inside that tank, and nine demons pop up and spit fire at you, and you can, like, see your tank melting. And this is change fire, too. It's not just normal fire, it's change fire. So as you're dying, you're, like, turning into, like, goo or a, or a packet of posies or, or something, because it's, like, chaos fire, right? Oh, good. So, like, mutations galore as well. So, like, yeah, this is it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, that's a pretty image. I call it my flamer bomb, <laughs> which is significant because we're going to be talking about firebombing later. So, like, yeah, it's, it's my flamer bomb, and uh, it's it's extremely effective um, at, at doing a nice little deep strike uh, hit at somewhere in your opponent's line. Now, this last unit we're going to talk about, <clears throat> I do not own yet. As I was researching for this episode, and I was looking him over more, and looking over some of the combinations of what you can do with him more, I realized that I need three of these in my army, because they, they come single unit, and you can only have three of a data sheet, unless it's a troop or a dedicated transport, of which he is neither. But he's awesome. So, Foul Blight Spawn. Anybody who plays Death Guard, you know who I'm talking about. He has a plague sprayer. So these other guys we were talking about, they actually had flame weapons. His is, is technically a biochemical weapon. Operates off of the same mechanic, which is to say it automatically hits and all that. Gameplay-wise, is functionally identical. Functionally, the, yeah. Functionally identical. Um, now, this one only has a 9-inch range. So that should tell you that it is pretty awesome otherwise for me to have included it in this list because it only has a 9-inch range. Does so, it generally hit harder flame-wise if it's got a shorter range? or No. Oh, okay. Again, uh, the, uh, most flamers are between 9 and 6, and they, they hit at that strength 4. So oh, okay. most of them are, are decently weak. Um, this one is a 9-inch range, so that means this guy, the deep-striking thing does not work because you have to be more than 9 inches away when you deep-strike, which is like 9.0000001 inches away. Mm-hmm. So if they've got a 9-inch range, it's out of range. But this is an assault weapon, assault D6. The significance of that is that you can advance and use an assault weapon. Normally you take a negative 1 to hit, but because a flame weapon, quote-unquote, automatically hits... You don't have to worry about that, which means this guy can sprint all over the board and still use his weapon with no penalty. That's nice. That is nice. Um, The strength of this weapon, chaos. 2d6. You roll for it every time you use it. So up to 12. Minimum 2, up to 12. Now the average on two dice is 7. So you can bet on 7 or around 7. This thing hits like a tank is what you're telling me. Yes. I mean, you have a one in six chance of rolling seven on two dice. So most of the time, all things considered, you're going to be getting sevens with this guy, uh, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. It has an AP of negative three. Let me tell you that again. Negative three. That means that a space marine is having trouble with this. It's eating through his armor. A, a guardsman is just not there anymore. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a blurb on the ground. This thing sounds really overpowered. We're not even done yet, my friend. (laughs) I'm just telling you the stats. I'm not even telling you what you can do with it. So moving on, damage. So these other two that we talked about, Castland Robots and the Flamers, as awesome as they were, they only did one damage. Each hit or or each wound that gets through only does the one damage. Foul Blight Spawn do three. Flat three Turns out that's a lot of damage. Turns out that's a lot of damage. 
So that's just the base stats for this guy. So I saw that and I'm like, okay, he looks pretty cool. But then you start looking at it and he's even cooler because this plague sprayer qualifies as a plague weapon. Go figure. That's significant because plague weapons, you re-roll ones to wound. So it's got the same as the, what, the Castellan guy? No, not the Castellan. The, the Flamers. The Flamers. But wait, there's more. Oh, of course. There is a... We're the infomercial here. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Mays. Um, here to bring you plague sprayers. Here to bring you plague sprayers. Did you like Nurgle? Do you like sickness? Is it a blessing? Do you get the flu and go, mmm, yummy? Right now you can buy not one, not two, but three. But three foul blight spawn. Sorry. All right, so... Mortarian comes with this standard if he's your warlord, but you can put it on any warlord besides Typhus. There's a warlord trait called Arch Contaminator. Basically what this does is it takes that plague weapon ability, you re-roll ones to hit, mm -hmm. and you re-roll all wounds. Sorry, not to hit. You re-roll a wound. You re-roll all wounds with plague weapons. Right? Okay. Okay. So you, if you think that's awesome, there's I got one more thing for you. I got one more thing to stack on there. Veterans of the Long War is a stratagem that gives you plus one to wound. Do you remember that from the flamers? Mm -hmm. you know, your, your five becomes a four, your four becomes a three. So you've got this potentially exceptionally powerfully strong weapon doing a lot of AP and a lot of damage, and you are basically guaranteed to wound there. Now, dice can be dice. You can stack ones on yourself. You know, I, I've seen it happen. But that... That's rare. That's tasty right yeah. there. I mean, if it wasn't Plague Spray. Plague Spray maybe not so tasty, but that's an awesome mechanic. <laughs> so. So what's the weakness of these guys? These guys sound so crazy overpowered. Uh, the Foul Blight Spawn, their weakness would be that they are a lot, they're just a, a, a Plague Marine. So they, I mean, they've got a toughness of five, like all Plague Marines do, but they're, they're just like a character by himself. The Castland robots are significant because they're big hulking robots that come in groups. The Flamers are significant because you can deep strike them and you can put them in a large group. Flout Blight Spawn comes all by his onesie. Their real definition of high risk, high reward. Yes. So they need to come with friends. So you need to have them in a group with some pox walkers or some other plague marines, making sure that they're safe because your enemy will try to kill this person. Oh, yeah. If they are smart. Because... I don't even play this game, and I was just like, that That would get all of my attention. Right? <laughs> it was like, in the game against TF, when he nearly killed my knight, he used kill shot. Um, with three predators, and I've I had never actually seen three predators on the board before. Um, nobody had done that before in the club, and so this is my first time with this particular stratagem. Um, the next round, he had one predator tank <laughs> because I wasn't going to let him do that again. <laughs> <laughs> that hurt. Um, so yeah, I, I could imagine your foul blight spawn are going to be targets because that play, plague sprayer is serious business. Um, so these three, like I said, as, as a general rule, flame attacks and 40k are, are generally fairly weak, but these three gems shine out to me as, as particularly good, uh, examples of how the mechanic can be played well. Uh, cause again, you've got some lists that can be impossible to hit some of these Altioch lists. Heck, even, even, uh, my, my list that I run with, um, my AdMac in the Stygies 8 can be hard to hit. So guaranteeing your hits and making sure your wounds go through can be very, very good in this game where everything is dice luck. So any guarantees you get, like automatically hitting your opponent, that is good. So you play off of that mechanic, make the wounding better is kind of the idea. Yeah. 
All right, I'm gonna we're, we're gonna wrap up the 40k talk for a second because I want thumbs to join into the conversation. Um. Someday <laughs> I'll be able to say something other than yeah. We're we're figuring out a time I can learn the basics of 40k. Yeah, I've got this kill team this kill team box that we're gonna we're gonna sit down and and work with for a little bit. But now we're gonna get to some bell. We're gonna get some bell. We've been doing this for about the same amount of time, so we can talk about this in that regard. Um, and but you might be wondering again, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode. I was like, you know, this doesn't really apply to bell. We don't light we're each other's tents. We're not lighting tents. the bells on fire. Yeah, <laughs> the only thing we're lighting on fire is the, the the campfire as a general rule. The uh, occasional cigarettes. person that falls in the campfire. Occasional person, but that's a we put them out quickly. Yeah, like that's yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, but uh, the fire we're talking about here is again that emotional fire. It is that passion, um, the killing spirit, if you will. That that enables you to perform better and and kind of pass that spirit on to your to your teammates. When you were telling me about it before this episode, like what we were going to be talking about, you described it as the Uncle Iroh energy. Yeah, I mean, like it because there's that episode. If you if you've watched Avatar: The Last Airbender, this was a show that I did not expect to be as deep as it was. No one did. I started watching. You, I think you had me actually start watching it. We were living together at the time, and I was taking a class on Buddhism, and. I was watching this show with thumbs while I was writing my final paper on Buddhism, and I honestly think it helped because it, I've I've seen so many shows, so many documentaries, I've read so many books uh, of people trying to explain Buddhist and Zen um, concepts, and it took a Nickelodeon show. I've never seen pretty much anything that deals with spiritualism quite as well as Avatar The Last Airbender mm-hmm. did. And even Legend of Korra, which I really liked, the sequel series, it didn't get the spiritualist side as strong for Well, the, the main character wasn't Aang. You know? Yeah, that's Aang, fair. Aang that's... was this to, like, almost Tibetan monk-looking dude who, who like, was very focused on the spiritual. And so uh, the first one was going to be more about that, whereas Korra is more about, hi-ya! Yeah, she's an she's, adventurer. Yeah, she's the, the roundhouse kick kind of gal. Um, but this this idea that Iroh talks about is that, well, at least in the episode, he says that firebending comes from the breath. But we're not talking about actual firebending, but, but this emotional fire does come from the breath. Controlling one's breath upon the battlefield is the, the really the first step to mastering this kind of energy. Because... <clears throat> It, breath is is everything. It's you'll it's, actually see it with new people a lot. Where I'll have to like stop and be like, "You need to breathe." Oh yeah, like just as simple as that in the early days. Just because mm-hmm. they'll be thinking so much about doing other stuff that they'll forget to breathe at oh, a moment yeah. that you you know breathe while doing it. It just it just works better. Surprise, surprise. And and that's not just new people. I mean, even I every now and then mm-hmm. have to stop myself and I'll get lightheaded and I'll stop and I'll re- I'll realize that I've been binding myself up with my own movement. And I'll you know kind of analyze for a second and realize that I haven't been taking breaths, that I've been holding my breath while I've been doing my strikes. And so I, I'll just quickly think otherwise and like... Why am I breathing so heavy? Right. Uh, I wasn't actually breathing when I should have been. <laughs> Um, but this idea of breathing is the whole time. You should be breathing deeply between fights. Uh, you should be breathing fight, uh, deeply when you're preparing to fight, and you should be breathing deeply while you are fighting. And this can be very hard. Even just this portion can take years to even get marginally good at because our nature, I think, is to tense up. It yeah. is, to, it is to, to clench when you're about to get into the violence, and, and it's this... Uh, 
this musculature response, but what that does is it actually gets in your own way. Uh, it stops you from moving as quickly. You would, you would think that it would make you faster, but honestly, it makes you slower. If you're tensed, you have to untense before you do anything else. And you're fighting the rest of your muscles, too. Yeah. Because it's not just the muscles you're trying to use that are tense, it's the whole system. So this breathing is a natural way to calm yourself down and release tension from your muscles in preparation of the fight. It highly oxygenates the blood, gives you the attention, gives you the, the energy that you need to do what you're about to do, uh, lets you call out commands if you need to. Um, what also helps with this is is any sort of like, I, I only calls it like a key op. I, I, I oh yeah, he loves those. He sound, we used to tease him as being Link because like, he on hot, 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 hot. Yeah, it was just, it was, it was <laughs> hilarious. Funny. I love you, honey. I'm not. But it was you. effective is the thing. Like his, his strikes are incredible because he, again, he's using that breath. He's using that force of, of his diaphragm to, it's, it's like an inner fulcrum almost for, for this energy moving outwards and it makes everything you do stronger. I try to exhale while I'm throwing my strikes. Um, this can sometimes result in me blowing in my opponent's face. There's been a couple of times, there's one tournament in particular where I distracted myself because I just blew this person's hair out of their face <laughs> and I was about to apologize, but they didn't notice. They just, they just iced me because they were focused on other things, but it is a time to kill. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, any sort of exhale, whether it involves noise or not, honestly, like I, for Oni, it's more effective to make the noise because it's it's also motivating for him. But for me, just the tension, just the the ability to just breathe outward quickly, that alone can convey some energy to my strikes. Yeah. Well, and with Oni, it has the added advantage of it scares the heck out of other people. Right. So. Well, there's absolutely that intimidation factor. Like, he gets to live that bard life. Right. And, and, and like a barbarian bard type thing, because the the song is a is a vicious and glorious one of conquest. Barbarian. Um, I know there was there was one of those classes in one of the books we were looking at. Oh, that's so much fun. Anyways, um, sorry, barbarian. <laughs> I like that. But so this master of breathing is really key to what we do because it, it it like we've said it does the two things of it controls your body, it helps control your mind, and it helps get into your opponent's head. So those three things alone are a good reason to master your breathing. Um, yeah, and then yeah. also you're just not passing out on the field. That's yeah, no, that's... <laughs> far more effective conscious, as a general rule. Um, I, I definitely have been effective as a quote-unquote body bag. I've thrown myself into a shield wall before, absolutely died, but the hole I made was big enough for my... my um, your people to break my through My people with to you. break through with me. Uh, but I did have to be breathing. I did have to be breathing in order to do that. Nobody hucked me. I had to, I had to generate the force of my own will. So uh, breathing is good. And mastery of the breath is, is essential to capturing the energy of fire and applying it to the battlefield. So we're going to talk first about fire in solo combat. And then we're going to talk a bit, a bit about how it applies to a more of a field situation. Uh, I just realized I had to XYZ. Nobody here but thumbs in the cap, but I'm still self-conscious, of course. If you hear a zip, that's why. <laughs> um, so this fire in solo combat, it's, it, it starts with the breath, and I find that the second place it comes out is through the eyes. I like to maintain a lot of eye contact when I'm fighting my opponent for two reasons. The first one is, is fairly obvious. The eyes are telling of what your opponent wants to do. If your opponent is not practiced, they will often telegraph their shots, with their eyes, 
Um, so That's that, why you picked up sunglasses for so many years. I mean, also because I was uncomfortable meeting people's eyes. <laughs> gaze. <laughs> now I don't care. Now I just dead gaze people straight in the face, and, and that's even more intimidating. Um, and that's the second part. So there's, there's, the, there's the portion of it's a good way to gauge what your opponent is doing, and then you can also intimidate somebody just through eye contact. Um, Oni and I have completely different styles. Uh, Thumbs is a bit more akin to mine in that we both get very calm on the battlefield. We don't we don't generally we're not very animated. If we're, I don't need to, I won't even have my weapons up in position. Right, right. So we're 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 at a very like neutral or like negative Zen right there. Whereas like Oni is like is is the aggressive like he's more of a fire type. I find myself more of an earth fighter, but Oni, Oni is definitely fire. Oni gathers attention with what he does, which is really effective. Right. We bluff. Yes. <laughs> They're like People who don't know me, like I've talked about this before, I held off an entire field or side of a field because I walked up in the middle of the field, looked like bored and kind of bring it, and stared him down. And people who didn't know me were like, well, obviously this guy knows what he's doing. Look, he doesn't even have anyone backing him up. And You like, gave him the lazy eye. Behind the uh, face, I was just like, oh my god, I'm so dead. Please, oh, please, please fall for this. Like, <laughs> they step, we're done. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, that's, that's the field combat idea, but it also works in, in the, the one-on-one as well. Um, so th- that's two benefits right there, but also the I find that making eye contact with somebody makes the situation more real. It excites my blood more. Um, You're getting it, that personal contact with it's, it. It's like, it's more personal, yeah. And so, it, but you have to be able to channel that. Yeah, it can't like we like I said before. I was wearing sunglasses for the longest time because it honestly made me uncomfortable to make that kind of eye contact with somebody um, that aggressively. So uh, you have to be able to master that feeling first, because if if it's making you uncomfortable, then you're the one that it's working on, and not in a good way. Um, so that's that, that you have to be comfortable with that aspect first. So some people are just not going to be able to get this. I know some people are just not comfortable with eye contact. So this part of it, maybe not so much. Oh, is the cat getting ornery? I accidentally pinched this too. Oh, I'm the worst. You're the worst. He's also just, you know, whiny. <laughs> but the, the, the fire also comes out in one's motions, in one's commitment to one's motions. Like the fire catches on the wind and moves quickly across the plane, so too must you catch fire and move at your opponent. Once you've decided on a course of action, the commitment comes with the with the full dedication to it. And again, we we've been mentioning Oni a lot in this episode. I'm sad he couldn't be here. He was he's very passionate about He'd this be particular perfect for this subject. Episode. He really is. Um, but distance and and busyness of real life keeps him, of course. Um, but committing to it, it's not it's not even it doesn't have to necessarily have to be violent. It doesn't have to have to be emotion that is ugly or crude. It can be graceful. It that can actually be. works against you if you're doing the kind of ugly, crude anger emotions to power you. Yeah, like you know, and and that that's a good point. We're, again, we're talking about this control. The fire is of no use to you if it burns you as well. So if you've got this emotion going on, I, at first, I when I first started getting goodish at fighting, I was in uh, embracing something that I referred to as Sith fighting, um, and it's something that's fairly common for a lot of new newer fighters who just want 
to utilize that energy that they have. And as you actually use anger, um, and that anger propels you into being able to do better ish on the field. Now it also makes you sloppy and it makes you easily provoked and it makes you more likely to get injured. Yeah. Makes you far more likely to get injured. So it's not actually a good habit to form. So if you're a person who uses straight up anger to fight, I would strongly recommend against it. You will not have as long of a career as you would like. We actually had a guy in a bear pit a couple of weeks ago and he was running out of time and he was trying to get through this bear pit and he was doing that like, no, no, I'm just like ang- angry about it, using his anger to get through. And I actually had to like go in and sit like, be like, you need to stop and you need to breathe because mm-hmm. doing this anger is actually making you do worse because you're just so like vibrating well, you stop that you can't thinking. actually get anything done. You stop thinking. And again, a state of no mind is good where you can just act without thinking, but that that's not acting out of irrational anger. It's not yeah. acting out of a place of being controlled by an emotion. It should be acting on muscle memory. It should be acting on the right thing to do in the situation. Not so much, I need to crush it, and I need to crush it now. It's just harder to respond to stuff. Like, this guy does when he's fighting calm and not trying to, like, anger his way through a time schedule, mm-hmm. which I understand. I've done it, too. Uh, he does really well for himself. Yeah, he does. But that he's time, he was having... It just was not clicking. Yeah, like we were saying, it makes you sloppy. It can make you very predictable. Uh, a lot of times people who are angry will open with the same shot and follow with the same combos because they're just getting frustrated and they just want it to work. So this fire we're talking about, it's not anger. It's it's passion. It's it, it, it's the like I said, the competitive spirit. It, there's, it's hard to describe. Um, if you felt it, you felt it. If you haven't, you will. Uh, just keep with it. Um but yeah, so this fire, again, comes in this dedication, comes in this this quickness of movement, but that quickness is, it, it, again, it's not coming from trying to be fast. It's coming from being able to connect the, the, the lowest, the highest efficiency, the closest point, or the closest path between two points. All of this stuff applies to this, this idea of fire and applying it uh, in combat. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Star Wars because I just watched Star Wars. They have a, a thing in a lot of those where uh, give in to your emotions is a Sith thing that they yell all the freaking time. Right. And whenever they like just try to give in to pure anger, it never works very well. But No, it doesn't. And I mean, again, you, you get the impression that it has to work some of the times because these Sith obviously survive their fights. But when they're going against somebody who has truly mastered their emotion, um, it's it's something completely different. Because if you are giving into your emotion and somebody else has mastered their emotion, then they can master you through your emotion. And that's not something you want to, to have happening to you. It's not fun. No. In fact, you want the opposite to be occurring. You want to be mastering the other person through their emotion. So uh, using fire and so all combat honestly, is solo combat. If you think about every fight that you're in, it doesn't matter if there's 100 or 200 or 1,000 people on the field. Every fight that you're in is a solo combat. Then these, these rules apply to that as well, that intensity, that direction, but that control. Because again, a fire that spins out of control burns you as well. Uh, but a fire that is centered, a fire that is channeled properly, can take the field by storm. 
Warlord, uh, Warlord McGee mm-hmm. visited a couple of weeks back. He's from here originally, moved. I think he's down in Texas? Texas? Yeah. Florida, maybe? Somewhere. It's warm. Southern United States these days. He's playing something. Uh, but he and I were both with spears, and just we had the right click of that energy of his fire and my fire that we, it was Valhalla, so it was just repeating teams of two people coming out and coming out and coming out. And we lasted, on average in Valhalla, I usually last like a couple of minutes, and we lasted like 15, 20 minutes. Nice. Just with like two spears. It Or at least it felt like that. Who knows? Right. Maybe it was. But no one could beat us because we had that right level of like fire, but control. So that that brings us to the next part of this, which is the idea of using this fire in field combat with a group as well. And so that means passing that fire uh, to your teammates. And this can happen one of two ways. Either you just click. Yeah. Like you were saying, you and Warlord that day, you guys were just in the same headspace. You guys were vibing on the same frequency or whatever the case may be. We had the right kind of crazy going. Yep. And you were right there and, and you rode the wave and, and it was awesome. But this... This can also be something. So that's random. That's, yeah. that, that's some, you just click with somebody, and that's and that's cool. There's also the fire that comes with practice. Uh, I'm sure if Oni was here, he would tell the stories of how he and Kaji would in, enter the field together, and they are two people who have very well matched fire types. Like they just they have the same intensity that that to same this drive. day when they work together, they just. Like, it's like sad it's, that they don't get to more often. Like I wish I could see them on the field together more because that's that's it's honestly a a, a duo that I enjoy fighting because of that intensity. Like, it was it's, never it's something cool. you could ignore. No, I mean you definitely can't ignore it. It's a force on the field. Um, but that's something that comes with practice. That comes with with knowing somebody, spending the time, having that connection, and so that'll occur between close realm mates or close unit mates. People who spend a lot of time together and practice. Together. When Yumi and Turkey lived together was probably like the best combination of time just because we knew how each other vibed True. so well. Yeah. And, I, and Turkey and I still have that because we work together a lot as like Warmaster and Apprentice. We we spend a lot of time at least even just chatting, but like most of the time when I'm there, we're nearby one another. Uh, and not just because he's my apprentice, I also like the guy. Um, but so it's it, it, there, there. There's that familiarity, and I mean, we, we still get it too. Like when we live oh, yeah. next to each other, like there, there's not a there's no rustiness there. It's it it flows as it were. I love being in my unit. I adore the Gelf. I would not change it for anything else. But there are definitely people that went different routes that I really miss, like having that opportunity to regularly fight with. Right. You're one. Hakan's one. Dickie's one. Which the really, Stygians that I know. I really, I just, I love fighting with Stygians. What's been so strange to me is, like, I've been involved in a lot of units at this point. Um, and every time I've been in a new unit, there's always been an adjustment period, not just socially, but also on the field. Getting used to the way people fight, getting used to the way that the unit fights. Um, and with the Dark Angels, I've loved every single Dark Angel that I've met so far. And I've been in the unit for a couple of years now. Not as active as I would like to be because I'm all the way Stuff on this happens. side of the country, too. Um, but, uh, but I, I, but I've loved them all, but I'm still very awkward. I, I have a hard time with people socially until I've known them for an exceptionally long time, but without fail, every time I've stepped on the field with the dark angel, we have torn up our little section of heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that brings us to the third type of, of interpersonal fire, which is just that 
that spirit that can be shared. It's kind of that random, but like you said, there's some days you'll fight with McGee and, and it won't click like that. That day you guys were vibing, so that was like a yeah. random circumstance. But other days we'll do fine. But, the, but then there's this third type where it's consistent, and it's, a, it's the way people are. It's that intensity they bring to the field when it, when it vibes just right. This, this can work especially well if you have a support and a primary together, so like a sword and board, uh, which is to say a, a sword and shield, and a spearman. Like that combo, if they're vibing together and they know it's how each other unbeatable. Move, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and I've definitely lined up with strangers before, people in the east who I don't know the name of to this day because we were next to each other in the line once and then never saw each other again. But for whatever reason, uh, our our uh, waves were aligned and, Years and it ago, moved well. At Western Wars, there was some EBF, and I don't remember who it was. But they, I was spear, they were sword and board, and, like, never had talked to this person before. Mm-hmm. And, like, he had, like, one quick critique for me, and after that we just clicked, because I had just started spear at the time. Right, right, right. Um, and he gave me, I'm still not sure who this was, but he just gave me this, like, approving nod. And, like, I still remember that specifically, just from, like, the day something clicked. Sure. Like, and that, and that, I mean, it's an awesome feeling. And, and when you can utilize that. Yeah. Beautiful. But it's not always reliable. You can't always just depend on other people's energies aligning with yours. You're people not, have off days. People have off days. Uh, and again, that first one, the circumstances, that's definitely not one you can depend on. And and even that highly practiced um, being able to, to know somebody because you, you've been around them so much, they might not even be at the event. You might yeah, be in a, in a place. That takes a whole lot of like emotional energy to get to that point. You're not going to reach that with most people. No, especially not over the course of like a couple of days, unless you guys have a really, really good bonding session over the fire, uh, which has happened. It's, it's possible. Like we, there was one year where we had a, like a bunch of us turned traitor to our units because we had a really good evening just around the fire together. And we're like, we like each other. Let's just quit what we're doing and form this anarchistic union. Oh, I remember that. It fell apart pretty quick. Uh, Immediately. Anarchists. Um, (laughs) Anarchist organized organization. No sense of organization because it was anarchy, decentralized. Um, So if you're in the, but but you, you, as a warrior, you want this fire to be consistent. You want to make sure that not just you are blazing, but your entire team is blazing. So how do you accomplish this? Well, you know, Oni does it, like I said, just through his sheer presence. Like, he just flies at the opponent, and just through the way he fights and, and the, the sounds he makes while he's fighting, I think he motivates the people around him to kind of join in and to at least follow in his wake. They're because, like, oh, crap, he's doing a thing. I should go right. do things. So even just that, even just being the dynamic motion on your team can help instill that fire in other people. Uh, my method is typically a bit more yelly, which is that I dig deep and find inner drill sergeant um, and holler at people when I see opportunities. It doesn't mean that people will always do what I say, but if I'm doing what I'm saying and hollering out why I'm doing it in the KISS um, format, which is keeping it simple... Um, this is like the hardest one to do as far as I'm concerned. It came to me easily because I was the student first sergeant in basic training and I was the drum sergeant or the, the, yeah, the, did I say that right? Drum sergeant? The drunk sergeant? Drum sergeant. Drum drum sergeant. That makes way more sense. Drum, what are we called? The dude, the dude who marches at the front of the band. Oh my gosh. Either way, you had lots of, (laughs) (laughs) 
you had lots of experience of shouting out commands. That was a lifetime ago. And if you can do that, it's great. But if it's not vibing that day, or if you're just not practiced in it, it's just screaming at people. And that generally, especially if you don't give off this sense of, like, I know what I'm doing, trust me. People just give you this weird look of, like, what? why would I care what you have to say? And the difference between a authoritative shout and a jackass yell... <laughs> uh, is, is I was very not saying slender. that, but I was saying that. But that, but that's the difference. I mean, it, you you need to be able to yell at people without yelling at them, and you need to be able to convey emotion without provoking defensiveness from your own teammates. Mister Rothwell, our old drama teacher, described it as like theater voice. Theater voice. You're not screaming; you are projecting. Right. Right. Screaming, people go, "Oh, shut up!" What? But like. Projecting, if you're making sure you could be heard across an auditorium, works with the battlefield as well. And I incorporate just a little bit of my metal training in there. I like to put a tiny bit of a growl mm-hmm. to my voice because, I don't know, I think it makes most people think that they're in some medieval combat and... and oh, it's almost like we're just aiming for that. Yeah. Yeah. Not live action or role play at all. <laughs> but... Uh, but this is this is used in actual combat too. I mean, I learned this from people in the military. There's a reason I call it my drill sergeant voice, um, and that's because it, it is motivating. It's 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 something that makes other people dig deep and find a primal fire within themselves, so that even if they haven't been able to master the fire, you can help bring them to it. Um, is the idea? It's not about commanding people; it's about stoking the flames. And if you understand that. It will influence your tone. Again, you can tell when there's somebody who just kind of wants to be in charge and shout orders and is just kind of being a jerk about it. Yeah. Like, and, and nobody wants to listen to that person. Um, but there's a difference between that and, and a person who is just passionately throwing themselves into it and inspires you to do the same. Um, Books have been written on the subject. TED Talks and motivational speakers speak about it ad nauseum, but it's just that there's just a special something. There's just a, a, an effect. There's an entire economy around teaching people to do this. Yeah. So don't feel bad if it takes you a couple of tries. Right, right. Or if it's not something that comes naturally to you, but but definitely recognize it in other people and allow yourself to be taken in by that flame. Again, it's about control. Uh, we're not talking about a disorderly charge across the field or anything along those lines. Um but but control um, and passion together. Yeah. So this is fire. This is kind of the idea of fire in Belagarth. I, I hope, Oni, if, if you're listening to this, I hope I did it justice and uh, that I, I gave your ideas merit because I honestly found your, your analysis to be quite good. Um, real quick, I want to run through this, uh, the last little bit of the chapter, because the advice he gives is honestly really good. This section I'm just calling keeping a country at peace and your army intact, because that's what he, uh, what the instructions were in the back of the book. And these ones are, I think, more for realm leaders and unit leaders, because you need to realize that your beef is your, your peeps beef. It's so weird to say that. Um, I like to, I like to, I like to say things like You're that to my youth. students. I'm with the youth. <laughs> but seriously, like these teenage boys, when you when you sit there and you look at them and you say, "That's lit AF, fam." Um, just watch their souls die. Oh, it a just shrivels, bit. just shrivels right up. You, Laurie, too. We have a, a friend. She just turned eighteen. 
Um, but she's, oh, she's been your eye roll is going to be at your maximum oh, God, at 18. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I live for that eye roll. Um, I, I could be a good dad just because I like uh, dad jokes. That's it. I have no patience for anything else. But dad jokes, I got plenty of. Um, so keeping this country at peace army intact, again, if you're a leader, you need to be thinking about how your actions and how your emotions affect everybody else on your team. Um, and it's important to consolidate your achievements to avoid waste and delay. We're all trying to improve. We're all trying to move forward. And so consolidating your achievements, if you, if you had a really good day on the field, if your unit performed very well and action after action review, which is just sitting down and asking people, okay, how did that feel to you? What went right? What do you think we could do again? Like having them just cognate on the subject can be huge to, to making that success a more permanent and, um, it's a C word, consistent uh, thing. A really regular thing I do with my squires, and I'll do it a little bit with new people, is uh, stopping after the fight, doing like five in a row and being like, okay, let's talk about this. What went well, what didn't go well. And like making actually think about that is hard. Cause mm-hmm. you're like, I don't know. I swung some stick and then things happened. But if you're analyzing it and you're in the, in the practice of analyzing your own actions, both good and bad, you can take these achievements and actually build upon them. The next point, thinking ahead and building your victories, it's the same idea. Don't do the same stuff over and over and over again um, and not learn how to make it consistent because you're wasting time. You're wasting your time, which we only have so much. We like to think that our lives are infinite, but I'm 32 and I've got a nerve condition that is keeping me from being able to do melee fighting as much as I would like to. I would not have been able to predict this coming. Uh, this is, this is just sort of the happenstance of life, but sometimes your career can be a little shorter than you thought it was going to be. Um, not to say that I don't ever fight, but it has to, I, you know, the, the stars have to align for things I threw out my well. back last summer and there was a definite, like, oh, right. And I mean, I'm even, not 20 yeah, anymore. Even if you don't have a nerve condition, we all get older. We all, we all get creakier. We all get achier. Yeah. It's just a part of being human. So trying to learn as quickly as possible is a good idea because your career isn't going to be infinite. So as, as much as you can learn in as little amount of time, it's going to benefit you. So build on your victories. Uh, don't, don't have, don't reinvent the wheel basically. Also do not move without a clear advantage. Um, yeah, there, there's no point in doing something unless it benefits you and your group and whoever you're representing. Um, so this also takes thought. Everything we're talking about here is, is very thoughtful things. You have to be very uh, reflective and thinking about everything all the time. Uh, cause it's really the only way to get ahead. Yeah. That's, I mean, this, this podcast, the art of war gaming, we are overthinking war gaming. I will obviously advocate (laughs) for the overthinking of just about any subject. Um, and uh, this, this idea of not moving without a clear advantage, do not use your soldiers without something to gain. That's kind of the same idea. Uh, don't have your cell phone on while you're recording. Oh, wait, that wasn't Sun Tzu. That was me. Uh, if you're going to throw a shot, be prepared to do at least as much damage as you are risking receiving throwing right. that shot. Right. Yeah, if I'm going to take an arm, I want to at least give an arm or or kill them in the process. Like, a lot of times in a big fight, the way I think about it is I want to cause at least as much damage as it takes to kill me. So even if it's against two different people, if I arm two different people, that's still an overall 
even balance to keep your KDR above one. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, kill death ratio. Um, but like, don't forget assists in there too. Yeah, well, yeah, assists are huge. Um, and they're, they're honestly the majority of of my kills. Oh yeah, the assists. Well, I was standing uh, there, so they had to pay attention to me, and then you got it. Yay me! This one isn't so much for us as it is for uh, again the the leaders. Uh, do not fight if not in danger is the idea here. And again, that's, that's don't pick a fight. Don't go, go cruising after beef unless you, there's a reason for it, unless there's danger. There's a lot of politics. There's a reason Belagarth. pick your battles is a truism. Yes. And there will be plenty of battles. If you fight all of them, you will exhaust yourself. Um, so every rule change, every rhino hider on the field, you need to pick which ones are important. Um, same idea, don't allow emotional provocation. His is a bit lengthier in there, but this is the idea of that, that control. Don't allow yourself to be provoked. Don't allow your emotions to control you. As a realm leader, this can be hard sometimes. Yes, because oh you're a human God. being. You know? And people like to poke at authority. We had a teenager uh, last year, and I hadn't seen him in a while, but I was realm leader, and he was rebellious teen, and he's like, this guy's an authority. I'm going to rebel against him. Because I can't. And I mean, he's like 15. I totally would have done the same thing. I totally did. But (laughs) I remember. (laughs) But he, uh, I I definitely, it it helped in this case that I had a moment of being like, come on, dude. Like, I'm about as fake authority as you can get. This is not a fight worth having. Right, right. No, and and so, yeah, um, uh, try not to. Try not to just pick fights to pick fights. It's a waste of energy. Um... And that emotions change, and, f- and feelings will recover, but lives and kingdoms do not, is the, the last thing that he talks about here. And this actually segues well into what we're going to do for our, I'm air quoting here, battle report tonight, because um, we're going to do something a little bit different. Tonight, we're, we want to talk about the, the kind of human impact that some of these techniques can involve, because like we said at the beginning of this chapter, Sun Tzu actually advises... Uh, against using fire unless you really know what you're doing and unless it is the thing to do in that situation because fire can be uncontrollable. He literally says, like, you can... Anger can turn to happiness, uh, poor can turn to richness, whatever it is, but you cannot rebuild a city. Yeah, and lives and kingdoms uh, cannot... Yeah, do not come back. Yeah, um, be real sure of what you're going to do if you're doing this. And a lot of these, we're going to... So I want to do a little bit of a trigger warning here. I know we have listeners in both Germany and Japan, and we're going to be speaking a little bit about the effects of the Allied firebombing uh, during World War II. And we are not condoning this in any way. Uh, we also understand that there may be some other listeners from even Britain, France, or America um, who had ancestors who were a part of this conflict. And so we're going to try to approach this as delicately as possible. Um, but we just wanted to make sure that you knew that this content was going to be here. Yeah, and something that we talked about this, something that happened this recently as opposed to, you know, here's this war that happened 3,000 years ago. And that's the thing, yeah. There is that connection, and we can't talk about this without at least acknowledging that that exists. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so the, the phenomenon that we're going to be discussing tonight is actually known as a firestorm. And it is sometimes intentional, but most of the time unintentional, uh, the result of fire bombing. And so fire bombing is different than normal bombing because it uses incendiary rounds. Often it will use both incendiary and high-impact um, rounds in order to break up 
uh, structures and make it more difficult for firefighters to put the fires out themselves. It is pretty horrific, if we're being honest. It, it is What it aims to do is destroy the infrastructure, military infrastructure, of the defender. Unfortunately, in most modern cases... Civilian infrastructure and military infrastructure are one and the same, and civilians are often quite close to military infrastructure. We were talking earlier about how it used to be a lot easier to go separate from the fight, right. from the city. Right. Well, again, most of the battles we've talked about take place uh, either between cities or, or near smaller cities or something like that, but the people generally tried to stay away from the, for the most part. And it was easier to do so. There were wider spaces between people, but now with, with basically whole continents being cities and of themselves, um, civilian casualties become more and more and more of an issue. Um, so we're going to talk about the deaths that occurred because of this and... Um, kind of just the, the infrastructure damage that was done as a result, and, and perhaps not even an intended result in some of these cases. Um, so only the, the figure I found is that 5% of the bombings in World War II resulted in these firestorms. Um, it is unclear whether or not that was just the Allies or whether that includes Axis numbers as, w- as well. The statistic didn't specify. Um, but it, it's not very common. There's, for a firestorm to occur, several things have to be in place. One, the winds have to be relatively still. A slight breeze is often helpful, but a strong breeze blows it out. Um, so the winds are relatively still. You have a, a high increase of temperature in a small area over a very quick period of time. This causes a superheated column of air to rise, and what this does is it sucks in air from all around. This often results in tornadoes, like actual fire tornadoes occurring in these zones. And the temperatures in here can be incredibly hot. We're talking hot enough to melt steel, asphalt, and concrete, and burn anything that is flammable. Yeah, that's that's far more than your average house fire we're talking about here. Now, you might ask yourself, I know... I know Thumbs and I tend to go toward the more compassionate side of things, and so we say to ourselves, this method is not necessarily condonable. Other people may question why we say that, because after all, it is a quote-unquote effective method of war, right? Except that it's not. If you look at the huge uh, cost to America after the war, when we did the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe from the bombings that we helped do, the, the cost afterwards, I don't think it's worth it. I honestly no. don't think it's worth it, but we're not here necessarily to judge history. We're just here to talk about the effects. I, I watched of a really history. interesting documentary once, and I don't remember what the documentary was called, but it was from one of the people that was uh, heavy into the uh, into the Tokyo firebombings, and he very strongly argued of towards doing it because it was protecting other. In theory, less people died because they did that bombing, and I'm not saying I agree with that, but it was really interesting to like listen to this person who legitimately believed in this technique. Right. right. And so again, I'm not I'm not necessarily here to judge it one way or the other, but I will say that the I believe that the loss of human life should always try to be prevented. I I also prescribe to just war theory, St. Thomas Aquinas, but that's uh, <laughs> for another podcast. I had to go have a quiet sit down after <clears throat> reading about this. Yeah. Like it it just it it's is some heavy stuff. Kind of horrific. So we don't we don't want to just casually gloss into it and and not you know, frame it properly. Um, but to give you some reference here, uh, the Germans alone suffered almost half a million 
casualties over the course of the Allied firebombings. Between July of 1944 and January of 1945, um... There were about 13,536 people killed every month in firebombings. We live in a town of not too terribly more, much more than that, if we're being honest. No, I, Missoula, I actually got the stats for this because I want to put it in perspective for people. Missoula, which is where Thumbs and I live, which is where Stygia is, is a town of 73,000, and it is about 29 square miles. So it would take us less than a year. Yes, Yes. Um, so yeah, th- this was a huge number of people. Like I said, about half a million who were killed um, at this rate, and it was and most of these actually happened in Dresden and Hamburg, where these firestorms occurred. Um, so Hamburg was the first of these firestorms to occur. It happened on the twenty seventh of July, uh, in nineteen forty three. There were forty six thousand civilians killed, and the size of the firestorm was four point five square miles. Oh, oh. oh that's the, 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 and this one was a, was was basically a small fry. Now the numbers were were fairly large. This was uh, this was particularly bad because again, the military and civilian infrastructure was so integrated in Hamburg um, that the, the, these numbers uh, occurred the way they did. They didn't list how many dwellings were destroyed in this particular firestorm. But when you think about those old school cities, very that have been tight. Building, yeah. Well, that's part of the reason these happened. Like mo- most of the times in a modern United uh, U.S. city, firestorms will not occur just because of the way they're constructed, the way we're laid out and spread out. But in these medieval style cities where everything's on top of itself and there's a lot of flammable materials. These firestorms can occur extremely easily. Um, the next one <clears throat> occurred in occurred in Kassel or, or Kessel. I think I'm saying that right. It was also Germany, twenty uh, second of October, nineteen forty three. There were nine thousand killed in this one. It was more spread out, more of an agricultural area. Uh, the firestorm. So again, we're talking about a large or an area where the the flames are going upwards, sweeping things into it, potentially causing tornadoes. This one was 23 square miles, nearly the entire size of Missoula, Montana. Yeah, that's. There's a couple of towns within 23 miles of yes the, the borders. Yep. Yeah, so that's that is a a massive amount of space, and the dwellings consumed in this one. Now, I think they had warning, so there was only the uh, only the nine thousand casualties. I don't want to gloss over that, but there were twenty four thousand dwellings that were destroyed. So there there could have been much higher casualties for this one, um, like there were in Hamburg. Um, the next one occurred in Dornstadt on the eleventh of September, nineteen forty four. Eight thousand were killed, only four miles four square miles for this oh one. But again, this one was targeted around a chemical plant, and so the chemical plant and 20,000 dwellings were destroyed, and now Dornstadt is a, was one of those cities that was very much like we were describing. Yeah. Very, very medieval, very closely packed, like a castle-style city. Kind of one giant duplex of a city. Yep, and this one just tore right through it. Um, one of the most destructive ones occurred in Dresden, um, However, and this this was the, the the loss of life that occurred in Dresden was because the most readily like visible thing from the air was a sports stadium, which was right in the middle of the civilian section of town. Oh man! Um, and this occurred between the thirteenth and fourteenth of February. It burned so intensely that it took um, a long time to to die down. 
um, roughly 25,000 people died. Only eight square miles. Um, and again, they, they didn't report how many dwellings were lost in this one. Um, so these were the ones that occurred in Germany. Um, shortly after this, uh, Germany surrendered, and of course the Allies kind of stopped bombing them at that point. Uh, the next ones occurred in uh, Japan, and we had started to kind of do them on purpose at this point. The first ones occurred mostly on accident. Toward the end of the war, a science was being developed. In fact, one of the, the British um, bomber general, or not generals, um, the guys in charge of it had observed that at Coventry, when the Germans were doing their blitz, yeah. if they had known how to to make these conditions work, Coventry in England would have been perfect for a firestorm. If they had used this combination of high incendiary, high explosive rounds, they could have made it happen in Coventry. But um, they didn't, thankfully for the British. But Tokyo suffered one of the worst, and it doesn't actually technically qualify as a firestorm because it didn't get this, this vortex system developing where it went straight up because of some gale force winds coming from off of the ocean. However, um, if you know anything about the way the wildfire spreads, it, it still can burn. Like, winds carry yeah, just because you don't reach a firestorm doesn't mean that you're not right. terrifying. And, and, and if you, the, the loss of life and, and person and, 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 and material that occurred here was truly horrific. And again, I, 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 this, these numbers blow me away. Two days, over two days this took place, between the 9th and the 10th of March in 1945, between 80,000 and, 10, and 100,000 people died. And those are conservative estimates. Some estimates have this as high as 200,000 people dying in this, in this fire. 16 square miles. And you, the, the, there were 261 dwellings, or 261,000 dwellings that were destroyed. Now, Tokyo at that time had the highest population density in the world, which is why this blaze got so bad. Also, the building materials of Tokyo, you had a lot of paper. A lot of paper, a lot of wood. A lot of paper, a lot of wood. And so uh, the fire caught, caught just right. And again, when you have these conditions, when the heat is like this, it's not a matter of an ember settling, like coming down through the wind and settling on wood and then that wood catching fire. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the temperature of the air being high enough that it just makes things burn, which is it's an incredibly destructive. And again, you can't control it. Um, the same thing occurred in Ube on a much smaller scale. And this one was barely, barely qualified for a firestorm. It was the smallest firestorm on record at literally the smallest qualifying size at 0.5 square miles. It occurred on the 1st of July, 1945. And that's, still fire it's still fire. that's still fire. Still fire tornadoes. Um, but the last one that occurred, we don't know how many people died in it, and we don't know how many dwellings were destroyed because it occurred after the bombing of Hiroshima on the 6th of August, 1945, in the wake of the atomic bomb that went off, there was a firestorm uh, that consumed 4.4 square miles. And again, you, we can't really tell what was destroyed because of the firestorm and what was destroyed because of the atomic weapon. Um, but the point of this is to say that there is a real cost to some techniques in war. There is a real human cost um, 
to what we're talking about. And and for most part, we're talking about wargaming. And nobody dies in wargaming. And that's the beauty of it. That's why we like it. That's why we like it. We, we can get done with a game of 40K and we can talk about it with our friend and prepare for the next one. We can get done with a day of Belagarth and go have a beer with our with our friends around a campfire and get ready for the next day of fighting. Like that. That's the joy of this. We get to build this community. We get to have these people that we spend this time with. Nobody dies. Nobody gets hurt. There's no firestorms. Um, and so when we're talking about the real side of the battle, again, we're often talking about things that occurred long ago far away. But it's, I think it's good to remember that this is real. Yeah. That this stuff affects, that this is, that these are things that still affect people's lives. Anytime um, someone's like, God, I wish I had been born in a different era. I wish I was a Viking. I have this thought of like, <laughs> do you really? I love modern medical technology. I'm not even playing. Like, you want to be a robot. You want advanced cybernetic technology. The second they're like, dude, we will make you into a, we'll just keep your brain, but we'll, we'll put everything else into a robot shell. I'm like, do it. <laughs> just do it. I'm so ready to, to cast off this, this flesh. Oh, <laughs> but anyway, so that's that was again. That was the fire bombing, and and that kind of t- uh, ties into this attacking with fire. Like we said, Sun Tzu um, advised against it for this exact reason. It's unpredictable, and the and the loss of life can be worth more, or worth uh, it, it, it. It costs more than than it should, than than the action should. Um, what we've covered, what, what flame attacks look like in 40k, what I think are some pretty powerful combos. Um, we uh, covered the idea of fire in Belagarth, which is to say the breath, the emotion, the passion that can convey action, not just through yourself, but to your teammates. Um, we talked a little bit about keeping a country at peace and an army intact and some, some good, useful advice for that. And then um, uh, the real effects of, of some of these techniques, in particular fire attacks, in real world scenarios. Um, but uh, if uh, I want to remind you that we are getting ready to wind up this book. Uh, we're about to move into using spies, and then we are done with the art of wargaming. Uh, but do not fear. Not with the art of wargaming. Sorry, the, the art of war. I put too many means on there, uh, or gay means. Don't scare the people like this, Nick. <laughs> Shouldn't be scary. More. Don't be panicked. We will continue, but we will. We, obviously, we can't just keep talking about this book. Uh, do you, we have a next book yet? We have it pulled up on Facebook right now. <clears throat> so if you go to our, our page on Facebook, uh, give us a like while you're there, if you'd be so kind. Uh, just the Art of Wargaming, you'll see a, a picture of Oni and I smiling mugs. Uh, we've got a poll that's pinned to the top, and you just react in the way that you, uh, what next, next book you're interested in us reading. Right now, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli's Art of War is leading by quite a fair margin, but Name's please... going to stick for a while yet, then. Yeah, yeah. Um... So yeah, please get over there. Uh, that's our that's our Facebook account. Um, as always, you can follow us on Instagram. I try to post uh, pictures of, of cool stuff that people here locally are doing uh, in terms of wargaming. That's uh, Art of Wargaming Podcast uh, over there at Instagram. You can always email me. I love your, your comments, questions, concerns, criticisms at artofwargamingpodcast uh, at gmail.com. And then uh, thumbs... You can check out his podcast over. You at can General find Nerdery. me and my buddy Tyler over at General Nerdery Podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are on Facebook, Instagram, blah 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 blah. I'm not going to advertise it too heavy here, but if you like listening to me talk, I talk there, but more. And as always, we want to give out a shout out to our parent company, uh, Nightmare Box Presents. Uh, Brett and Kristen over there, and to their show, they're doing great work. Mistakes were made. Yeah, they're going strong, and uh, they, yeah, they're one of the most recent episodes made me laugh a lot. So. Um, and it's, it's, as always, it's good information for anybody who's of a creative or artistic streak. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's it. What do you think? Uh, I'm pretty much done here. I All right. I think it's about time for a nap. So tune in next week for Using Spies. But for tonight, this is Yagamalark. And Thumbs. Signing off.